right, all right. It's the Michael Slate Show. And yes, I'm being a little prankish today. <laughs> anyway, uh, welcome to the Michael Slate Show. I'm really glad to be here today. It's, uh, it always reinvigorates me to come out here and know that I'm going to be speaking with people who give a damn, especially at this time. At this time, it's really important. At the back end of the show, we'll be talking about an important cultural event. Well, actually, two important cultural events. One is the Harlem Cultural Festival, which took place over a period of six weeks in 1969, the same summer as Woodstock. A total of 300,000 people attended the festival. It featured an incredible lineup of just amazing musicians. You know, and it's something I remember from, and I didn't go there, but I remember hearing about it and wishing I was there, okay, because of the, the character of the event and of the and especially of the musicians that were playing there. The whole thing was filmed and then forgotten as the precious film canisters sat in the basement, which leads us to the second important cultural event, the film Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. First-time filmmaker Amir Questlove Thompson took those canisters, restored the film, and put them together in an extraordinary film. We'll hear a short feature about the movie, and then we'll listen to a discussion with Bob Avakian and Cornell West on the culture of the 1960s from a dialogue that took place several years ago. But right now, I just want to make this introduction, too, because there, there, you know, there have been important new developments in the fight to free Iran's political prisoners, including the publication of a very important appeal in the New York Review of Books and in the Iranian people's fight against oppression. So on today's show, we're going to be talking with two members of the International Emergency Campaign to Free Iran's Political Prisoners about these developments. Mariam Claren and Larry Everest. And I want to, before we just get into this real quick, I just want to say again, this is an extremely important development in the world right now. And I think people have to pay a lot more attention to it than they have been paying attention to. I'd like to hear what people think at the end of this. What do you think about what's happened, what's being said, what's being done? And where, do, where should humanity stand in relation to all this? Now, Mariam, Mariam Claren is the daughter of uh, Nahid Takabi, and um, he's a 66-year-old uh, German-Iranian dual citizen and women's rights activist who was arbitrarily arrested on October 16, 2020. She was taken to Tehran's Eben prison, where she spent 194 days in solitary confinement and was interrogated 80 times for a total of 1,000 hours, all without legal counsel. Mariam has been fighting tirelessly for her mother's freedom and the freedom of all of Iran's political prisoners. And you can follow her on Twitter, at Mariam-Claren. That's once again, at Mariam-Claren, and that's M-A-R-I-A-M-C-L-A-R-E-N. All right, so... Having said all that, Mariam, welcome back to the show, because I remember, I think you were in a car the last time I spoke to you. Exactly. <laughs> well, are you in a car now? I, no, no. <laughs> I, I <laughs> okay, all right. Um, well, let's get into this, because it's things have not um, gotten better in a certain sense. It's not that, not that people expected it to just roll over and be better. But there's, you know, there's been um, really uh, this whole thing about what's happening in the, in the jail in the jails, it's, it's, you know, there's a lot that goes on here. So let's talk about this. You know, again, there's been important developments in your mother's case in particular, which I really do want to get into right away, and those of other political prisoners. Please tell us what's happening now. 
Hey, Michael. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, there was a development last week. We have learned that the verdict of Nahid Hagabi, my mother, and five other political prisoners were given. And as we accepted the verdict, the sentences are very um, harsh. My mother, Nahid Hagabi, was sentenced to 10 years and eight months for running an illegal group and for propaganda, propaganda activities against the regime. Mehran Raouf, a British dual national um, activist, was uh, sentenced to the same uh, years in prison, 10 years and eight months. Uh, Bahara Soleimani and Somaya Kargar, two women rights activists, were sentenced to six years and eight months. And Nazanin Mohammad Nejad, a poet, um, was uh, sentenced to uh, three years and four months in prison. And um, let me say one thing clear. These guys are not running any illegal group. They are not members or leaders of any illegal group. This is what the, what the Islamic Republic of Iran creates for them, a so-called sham case. And um, we learned uh, one other thing. Um, we always thought there are six persons on this case, but we learned that two more people were sentenced uh, to harsh sentences. They were not even in Iran. They sentenced them while they are somewhere abroad studying, doing their thing, and one day they woke up and learned they have been uh, sentenced to, I think it was uh, eight years and eight months. And... Um, these people did not commit any crime unless thinking, challenging, researching, talking, discussing, having a critical point of view is forbidden. That is the only reason why these persons are in prison. And this is the main problem in the Islamic Republic of Iran. The Islamic Republic in Iran is a clerical fascist regime with fascist laws. And they don't even accept any other thinking. So let me say it clear. Thinking is forbidden and talking about your thoughts is a crime. So they don't like, I say it very easily, they don't like the way these people think, the critical point of view, what these people have, that they don't accept the fascist Sharia laws, laws that they talk about this, that they discuss that they, these people are scientific people who have a lot of questions and a lot of answers. And this is the reason why the Islamic Republic of Iran targets them, put them in jail, put them in prolonged solitary confinement. Uh, like you said, Nahid was 194 days in solitary confinement. Mehran Raouf was eight months totally eight months and five days in solitary confinement. He did not even have access to a lawyer after the trial was over. My mom had one time seen her lawyer before the trial, but Mehran did not even see his lawyer all the time. These guys were interrogated by the intelligence forces of the Revolution, Islamic Revolutionary Guard. They create a case for them. And they, uh, the sentence was already given because there is no independent uh, court or judge in, in Iran. So the intelligence uh, services and the security services give the verdict. And the only thing the judge is doing is to say this is the verdict. And 
One other thing. There were two trial dates, April 28th and June 13th. And, you know, six persons are in the trial. And the trial was only for about one hour, one and a half hour. The people did not even have the chance to to defend their, themselves, to defend their political point of view. The lawyers did not even see some of the detainees before the trial was. So, um, to be honest, for me and um, for, for the people who know the issue of the political prisoners, it was clear that this is going to have a hard sentence. This is going to be um, something very cruel. But I, I, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Um, it even uh, pushed me more to fight for their release. What kind of impact has it had on what are people are thinking, basically, overall in, the, in this situation? What, what are people thinking about that in terms of, because it's pretty, I mean, it's pretty outrageously and fascistic or in, in, in terms of what's happening to these people. But how has that been translated into the, the general public? Do people come, are people support, you know, standing up against that? Of course, of course. We have so much solidarity in the Iranian people, in the German public view, um, and all over the world, because um, I think it's very, very clear to everybody that this is not a sentence you should give to someone because he has another, another way of thinking or um, does not accept the oppressed, oppression of the people of uh, Iran. So um, even if everything would be true what they are saying, uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran, even then it's not the reason to put people in jail for this, you know, for example, in Germany, someone gets a 10-year sentence for murderer, you know, so it's very, it's very shocking. It was very shocking for everybody. I get so many calls, so many messages. Everybody got shocked, but my answer is always the same. Don't be shocked. This is what they are, and we have to see the reality. Um, I never accept that they are going to be free after the trial, but my, my hope is um, about the people because I think long-term um, issue, this is a long-term issue and this is a long-term fight, but I'm not hopeless. Um, I'm, I'm sure that um, one day we will uh, win this fight. Mm-hmm. Now, let me ask you this, because I think, you know, one thing is I really want people to recognize that what you're talking about, you're, you know, that your mother, you know, has basically been held by these people for quite some time and she's been charged with, you know, whatever crime they can actually conjure up and and. and basically throw at her. And she spent, as I said earlier, that she spent, you know, 194 days in solitary confinement, which in itself is actually a fascistic tool of, you know, a way that they get people to, they try to get people to break with all that. And I've been, you know, reading and, and listening to, to some things about people talking about some of the things that your mother has been going up against. And then also the ferocity with which you've, you've stood up and said, no, I'm not going to allow this to happen without people knowing about it. I'm going to, you know, get out there and get you know, mobilize people to stop this. Now, let's ask this because I think that's really important. And I understand also that one of the other things that people should know is that there was a COVID outbreak in the women's wing of Even Prison. Evan Prison, is it, or Even? Evan? Evan. Evan Prison, where, where your mom was being held. Can you tell us about that? Because that, uh, that, alone, that alone, forcing people into, into places where this is the kind of thing that's developing here is another way of torturing them in a, in a very big way, in a very dangerous way. Exactly. Um, you know, I, I, I want to mention that the COVID pandemic is very, very uh, bad in Iran. There are people dying every two minutes. This is what they say by themselves. So it's not something that we are saying outside of Iran for making propaganda. 
um, it's very uh, bad ongoing. And there is another reason they did not allow foreign vaccines to come into the country. You know, that's another fascist, Sharia, Islamic thing to say, no, we are not going to take any other vaccine. We are going to vaccinate the people by our own vaccine. They failed. They failed. So they don't care about the people outside the prison. So it was not surprising to me that they don't care about the people inside the prison. It's about five weeks ago when my mom calls me, calls me and said, we have a main problem here. You know, the Evin woman wing um, is only, um, there are only political prisoners. And there are about 25 of them. It's a, it's a very small wing with 25 political prisoners or what the Iranians called them security prisoners. And my mom called me and said, there is something bad going on. Two of, our, uh, two of the uh, women are very ill. We think they have uh, caught COVID, but the uh, prison authorities uh, don't care. They did not test them. After some of them were getting so much fever and feeling bad, they start testing only these two. And the tests were positive. They put them in quarantine, but they did not test the other woman. You know, these 25 women are living there together in a tiny place. They share the bathroom. They share the kitchen. They even sleep in, in rooms together. So it was clear that if two of them caught COVID, the rest will uh, get, uh, get COVID too. They did not test them. So after my mom told me this is going on, I did what I always do in the last 10 months. I go to the media. I said there is a COVID outbreak and the authorities are not caring about them. After a few days, more people get ill, more women get ill. And one week later, they tested them all. And Nahid Hagavi, my 66-year-old diabetic mother with high blood pressure, pressure was uh, covid positive. So it was clear that she caught COVID too. And from, from 25 women, 18 were tested positive for COVID. All of the positive tested women were allowed to go on medical furlough. They did not allow Nahi Tagavi to go on medical furlough. She's the oldest uh, woman there. She has uh, uh, high blood pressure, as I said, diabetic, and they did not let her go. And um, even the, the um, prison um, doctor said, oh, I'm afraid she, she, she has some um, issues. It would be better if, if she, she can get medical treatment outside the prison. But the authorities did not allow this. You know, and they don't come and say, we do not allow this. There is always a something like, oh, no, this is not possible because the verdict is not uh, transferred to there and there. And this was what, what we have seen the last two weeks. No, he was ill. No, he was alone in quarantine. No, he was feeling bad. She was coughing all the time. She had fever all the time. And I am so worried what will, is, what will be the long-term uh, problem that she's, she's going to have because they did not care about her. They, they, they act completely uh, irresponsible. And this is really a, another um, sign of the way that they treat political prisoners. Um, 
I, I think sometimes I cannot get more shocked, but this was something where I thought, oh my God, you are really the most cruel people I've ever uh, met in my uh, whole life because uh, why is everybody on medical furlough? Why don't you allow this old lady to go on medical furlough? And this is what, is, what was my, my job for the last four weeks to campaign for this issue. I'm happy. I want to announce this. That's very important. I'm happy that I an, announced that there is a COVID outbreak because maybe if not, they would not allow the other woman to go on medical solo. So I think it was a good thing. I think um, it is good that a lot of women are, are on medical solo. Um, and to me, there is no difference between Nari Tagavi and the other uh, woman in the wing. I, my, my aim will always be to uh, uh, campaign for, their, uh, for the freedom of all political prisoners. All right, Mariam, um, can you stick, stay on the air? Uh, we're gonna, um, I'm going to bring Larry uh, Everest into this, but can you, are you able yes. to stay? Okay, good. Let me, get yes. to, let me first uh, remind people that you're, you're listening to The Michael Slate Show, and we're talking right now with Mariam Claren, and we're about to talk with uh, Larry Everest, and we're going to be talking about the same essential question here. Larry, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be with you and Miriam, uh, Michael. All right. Well, you know, you're a lifelong revolutionary internationalist who's contributed to a revolution newspaper, Revcom.us, and reported from Iran shortly after 1979's revolution. And you're the author of Oil, Power, and Empire, Iraq and the U.S. Global Agenda. Now, you're involved in the international emergency campaign, and your latest piece, um, Vicious Wave of Repression Sparks Global Movement to Free Iran's Political Prisoners, is posted at counterpunch.org. Let's jump into this, because... You coming into this, you can bring something, you know, needed and also somewhat, you know, alike, but also different. Let's talk about that. What, what is this? Can you give us some background on the struggle of Iran's political prisoners, which will help people understand, get a better picture of what we've just been talking about? Some background on the struggle of Iran's political prisoners and the international emergency campaign and its efforts. Right, Michael. Well, listen, first of all, I want to say that my heart goes out and all of our hearts should go out to Miriam, to Miriam's family, to Nahid, and to all the political prisoners for this horrendous, illegitimate torture and now sentencing that they've been subjected to. And I want to join with Ariel Dorfman, the renowned Argentinian, Chilean, American playwright and novelist, when he got the message from Miriam and from the International Emergency Campaign to Free Iran's Political Prisoners that these sentences had been handed down, he wrote us back and said, I am desolate, but the struggle goes on. Do not ever, ever lose hope. And that's what our campaign is about. It's about freeing these political prisoners, nothing less than that. And by way of background, I just want to say that the issue of political prisoners was a big issue under the U.S.-backed Shah of Iran. And it's been a big issue ever since the Shah was overthrown in 1979 and this fascistic theocratic Islamic Republic was formed, including in 1988, when the current president, Ibrahim Raisi, was one of the people who directed the mass murder of 5,000 political prisoners in Iran in 1988. And the whole issue of political prisoners has assumed 
even more centrality and importance in the last several years, particularly after powerful mass uprisings in 2017 and 2019 especially shook all of Iranian society and shook this regime. And uh, here I just want to encourage people to go to revcom.us, revolution newspaper, revcom.us, where we've posted articles from Iranian groups, the Burn the Cage, Free the Birds movement, as well as the Communist Party of Iran, Marxist-Leninist Maoists, which go into the background of, of these uprisings, the situation in Iran, including the recent uprising in, that's still uh, percolating that jumped off in Huzestan province in southwest Iran in July of this year. But in every so I encourage again, go to revcom.s for this kind of uh, background. But in each of these cases, the regime has responded with bullets, bloodshed, imprisonment, and torture, sweeping up intellectuals, writers, feminists, women's rights activists, labor activists, human rights activists, protesters, revolutionaries. Um, members of uh, film directors uh, and members of oppressed nationalities like the Kurdish people, the Baluch people, as well as minority religions like uh, the Baha'i, and swept up. Really, it's what Miriam was saying. Anyone who has a critical, acts critically, thinks critically about the regime can be subjected to this kind of imprisonment that she's been describing. Uh, And this is why this wave of arrest that began most recently in October 2020, when Miriam's mom, Nahid, was arrested, prompted us to form the emergence of this campaign to free Iran's political prisoners on an emergency basis. And as you alluded to in your introduction, The campaign took a very important step this month with the publication in the New York Review of Books of of our emergency appeal, the lives of Iran's political prisoners hang in the balance. We must act now. As a full-page ad, it's the full back cover of the New York Review of Books, um, which is out on the stands now and, and available, obviously, uh, to subscribers. And this bold, boldly puts out this issue of Iran's political prisoners into the public square uh, as an emergency, a grave emergency, which demands people pay attention and act now. Right, let me say a couple more things I wanted to ask you, but I also want to once again say to people that you're listening to The Michael Slate Show, and we're, you know, we're talking about Basically, what's just some really incredibly, when you read this stuff, you, you, you think, you, you start wondering about how do people survive under this? And that's something I wanted to ask both Mariam and you. You know, the impact of the, you talk about the impact of the publication, but then people want to know how they, they, you know, yes, that's very important, extremely important. People should get it out far and wide. But what can people do in addition to that to contribute to this struggle? Because it really is necessary. You know, it, we cannot allow, we, we cannot allow ourselves to sit back and just say, you know, well, there's some people taking care of it. There's some people looking at it because just even what we've been talking about today, and I know we have a limited amount of time, but um, just what we've been talking about today, 
despite all of this repression that's going on, um, you know, there's been, there has been resistance, you know, there's been protests and resistance that have been expressed in this. And it's important. It's important that people know what, what role they can play in this because there's also the element too of the people that are being, you know, just terribly held in the prisons. You know, sometimes, you know, people do need to understand that there are people out there fighting for them and for, for, for humanity as in, in, and for what they represent in terms of the representation of humanity. Can we talk about that a little bit? Well, if I'll just jump in, um, the importance of resistance, very important, and, the, and the, the stories of the courage of Iranian political prisoners and the kind of resistance they've done from prison or even when they've got out of prison and are threatened with prison again, it's just been really heroic. And I encourage people to go to our website, freeiranspoliticalprisonersnow.org. It's a long one, but it makes sense. Free Iran's political prisoners now dot org. As soon as you get there, you'll see uh, a beautiful image of the the uh, top part of the New York Review of Books, uh, of the emergency appeal in the New York Review of Books. And I really encourage people to read this because the content of this is extremely important in terms of how it calls out this emergency is something that demands action. It highlights the courage of Iran's political prisoners and the need to unconditionally free them. And it also opposes any efforts by the United States to intervene, bully, uh, even sanction Iran. So it's, it demands that the Islamic Republic free these political prisoners. It demands that the U.S. carry out no form of aggression against Iran. And this is a very unique and critical perspective. And, you know, you were mentioning how uh, people withstand all this horrific torture. Well, one reason one thing is the solidarity from people around the world. In a very important statement, Ariel Dorfman wrote that from his own personal experience, and I'm quoting him here, the prisoners themselves are given strength to survive and persevere. They are listening. They know others far away care of what happens to them, and we should not let them down. And that's our our mission and our determination. We're not going to let them down. And when people come to the website, freeiranspoliticalprisonersnow.org, you're going to see this ad. And right to the right of that, you're going to see a series of things you can do very easily with a click of your mouse. You can read and endorse the appeal. You can see who has signed the very important people from the U.S., Noam Chomsky, Cornell West, Gloria Steinem, Dan Ellsberg, and many others, as well as the Iranian family members of political prisoners like Miriam, former political prisoners, Iranian thinkers and activists. Uh, are joining together in this call. You can find out who the prisoners are. You can help make sure that we can publish this appeal very widely beyond the New York Review of Books, as important as that is with this million-plus people that visit that website every month. You can learn more about the campaign. And very importantly, you can download a PDF of this emergency appeal 
and spread it to other people. And that's a very important thing to do. We've seen pictures from protests in Sweden where the trial of one of the henchmen responsible for the mass murder of 1988 of the 5,000 prisoners is taking place. We've seen pictures of this in London. There were protests there at the G7 around Iran's political prisoners. So that is a very important, all of these are very important ways that people can make a difference and be involved in that campaign. And we really encourage people to also email us. You can find the email at the website and give us ideas, give us suggestions, suggest ways that we can get this out. For example, on the campuses as they open up in the fall, any questions that people might have about this effort. So again, go to free Iran's political prisoners now.org and read the appeal and take advantage of some of these different ways that you can uh, participate. I really encourage people to follow Miriam on Twitter, Miriam underscore Claren, or me at Larry Everest. And uh, we're tweeting about this issue uh, all the time, and we can direct you to the Emergency Appeals Twitter account as well. All right, Larry, I'm going to ask Miriam if she has any, anything more to say. Miriam, how about it? You got some, some stuff you want to say more? Um, I, I think Larry mentioned the most important things, but there is one thing I want to add. Let us not forget that these people are imprisoned because they cared for other people. They, um, they, 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 they are all in jail because they were fighting for a better Iran, for a better world. They were standing against this oppression, and this, they, they are the real heroes, and they are imprisoned, and we owe them to fight for them, to stand behind them, to talk about them, to say no to this oppression. And um, I want to close it with a quote of my mom. Um, she said a few weeks ago from jail, she said, don't worry, Mariam, my body is in prison, but my mind will always be free. And this is very important. They can cage their bodies, but their minds are free. And we owe them to fight for their release. All right. Thank you very much. And I'm sure we'll be talking with you again soon. Um, Larry, uh, one last uh, comment. Would, I think maybe just giving people another sense of what's the importance of these protests in the whole political scene in Iran. Well, uh, I just I want to underscore. I want people to remember what Miriam mm -hmm. just Miriam just said, and um, you know the protest and this whole uh, political prisoners in many ways really concentrate the whole struggle for freedom and the struggle to end oppression in any society. And fighting for the political prisoners and freeing the political prisoners can have an enormous effect in Iran and also really globally in advancing, you know, the cause of emancipating humanity and ending all this, all the abuse that people face in countries like Iran and, and around the world. And um, so, again, I really encourage people to go to the website, freeiranspoliticalprisonersnow.org, and get involved, share your thinking, spread the word on this. All right, Mariam, thank you very much for joining us today. And thank we'll, you for having us. Yes, and we'll have you back again. 
Um, okay, Michael. Right. Thanks so much, sure. man. All right, Larry. Take care now. All right, folks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye now. All right, this is the Michael Slate Show, and we've been talking with Miriam Claren and Larry Everest, both part of the emergency campaign to free Iran's political prisoners. We're going to take a quick musical break and be right back, so stay tuned. That was Sly and the Family Stone with Stand. I thought that was appropriate because right now we're going to be talking about the music and culture of the 1960s. Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, by first-time filmmaker Amir Questlove Thompson, was released in early July. It's also streaming on Hulu. Over the course of six weeks during the summer of 1969, the extraordinary Harlem Cultural Festival took place at what is today Marcus Garvey Park. A total of 300,000 people attended the festival. The lineup of artists was mind-blowing. Stevie Wonder, Nina Simone, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Ray Barreto, Abby Lincoln and Max Roach, Mahalia Jackson, The Fifth Dimension, The Staple Singers, Blinky Williams and Sly and the Family Stone, and many, many more. 1969 was one year after black people rose up in over 100 cities following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. It was also the summer of Woodstock, but unlike Woodstock, the Harlem Festival was forgotten for too long. Revolution Books in New York City held a screening and discussion of the film a few weeks ago. The discussion featured Miles Soleil, lead singer of the group Battle whose song Decision is actually the theme song for the Michael Slate Show, and Greg Tate, a music journalist who was one of the performers at the Harlem Cultural Festival. You can see a short excerpt from their discussion on the RNL Revolution Nothing Less show on YouTube. During that discussion, Miles Soleil said he kept thinking of a discussion between Bob Avakian, the chairman of the Revolutionary Communist Party, and Cornell West, a revolutionary Christian and one of the leading public intellectuals today. This is from an event, Revolution and Religion, the Fight for Emancipation and the Role of Religion, a dialogue between Cornell West and Bob Avakian, which took place in 2014. So, we'll give a listen to that discussion, but first I want to play a featurette for Summer of Soul with director Amir Questlove Thompson. Okay. Rolling on eight. My name is Amir Questlove Thompson. I'm a musician and a music lover. And we are here to celebrate and talk of my directorial debut, Summer of Soul. Welcome to the Harlem Culture Festival. 
Nobody ever heard of the Harlem Culture Festival. Nobody would believe that happened. 50,000 beautiful people here in Mount Forest Park. I gotta admit, I'd never heard of the Harlem Cultural Festival. My producers, Robert Fivlin, Joseph Patel, and David Dennerstein, they showed me that footage. This was real, <laughs> so. It was like nothing I'd ever felt before in my life. The concert took my life into color, but then the festival was forgotten. There were over 47 reels of footage. Miraculously, it sat in Hal Tolson's basement for 50 years. We had to restore it. So that took five months alone for them to just go frame by frame by frame, dusting it, making sure that it didn't snap or anything. I got to say, when we got that footage, it was damn near perfect. A day after the death of Dr. Martin Luther King, in more than 100 cities, violence broke out. After the assassination of Martin Luther King, many in inner city, from Detroit to Philadelphia to Atlanta, like places were just erupting in anger, righteous anger. It's too late now. We are ready to start. We're going to finish it up. Not wanting to repeat what happened the summer of 68, the city allowed for this festival to happen just to have something sort of constructive and like, okay, whew, made it the whole summer without one broken storefront. It was a crazy, crazy, crazy period. We needed something to really reach out and touch us. We needed that music. Only a half hour of that festival garnered interest from an upstate New York syndication channel. They showed the festival at one o'clock in the morning. That's all that became of it. What's happening now is we're realizing, yo, instead of always trying to pander and please and readjust our lives to make certain people feel safe, like, let's please ourselves first. That concert was like a rose coming through cement. It was a good thing for Harlem. At the end of the day, I think a lot of the news just came to be because us discovering, you know, Black is Beautiful, even in a moment of love, like, that might have been too threatening to anyone that didn't understand the context that it was coming from. That was Amir Questlove Thompson in a featurette about his film, Summer of Soul. And since we're talking about this music, I can't resist playing a little bit of Nina Simone before the last segment. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me. I wish I could say all the things that I should say Say I'm loud, say I'm clear For the whole round world to hear I wish I could share All the love that's in my heart Remove all the bars That keep us apart
That was Nina Simone with I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free. Now we'll hear Bob Avakian and Cornell West. This excerpt begins with Bob Avakian responding to a question about why are we still fighting for justice in 2015? I would say the basic answer to the question of why we still have to fight after all this time is because we're still living under the same system. And unless and until we get rid of the system, the same things are going to keep on happening, even if they happen in some different ways. Like I was thinking about Detroit, mm. the, 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 the most powerful urban rebellion in the 1960s took place in Detroit in 1967. Now, I'm not advocating anything. I'm just telling you the facts. The people rose up in Detroit, and yes, they came in and they killed a lot of them, but they rose up for, by, for five days. And after they killed them, they said, oh man, we've got a really serious problem here. And they went and started hiring thousands of black people right off the street into the auto plants of Detroit. And those were high paying jobs. Now people always, and again, I'm not advocating anything. I'm just telling you the truth when they always say, oh, when people rise up, it doesn't do any good. It never does anything good. All it does is harm, ruin our own communities. They came and they hired thousands of people right off the street. And then they commissioned the Kerner Commission report. Yeah, you remember yeah. saying, oh, we've been mistreating black people. Who knew? And they started talking about how they kind of had to make all these changes. Absolutely. But now here's the thing. Here we are almost 50 years later. All those jobs that they hired those thousands of people into are gone. Most of the auto plants are closed down. Detroit is a basket case. I don't care they talk about how they got some kind of resolution to the bankruptcy. It's a basket case. Many people in Detroit can't even get water. Decent water. Think about that. A large number of people. And that's because it's more profitable, like you were just talking about, for them to close down those plants and to open them in some country where they can force the people to work for much lower wages and to replace people by machines. And when they replace people by machines in this system, they don't go to them and say, oh, you, we're putting you out of a job, but clearly you need to live, so let us train you for another job. They just say, hit the street, you're gone. Because this is the nature of the system. It's a system driven by ruthless competition among capitalists, which drives them to exploit people and to throw them out of work if they can't exploit them enough to make enough profit. Absolutely. So, so what's the, what's the, what does that prove? Does it prove that it was wrong for people to rise up in Detroit? No. Does it prove that it's wrong for people to be rising up now? Does it do no good to struggle? You might as well just accept it because they'll just beat you down anyway? No. It's very important that people rise up, that they did so then, and they, I agree with you. Mm -hmm. We could be on the start of a whole new wave of struggle. But where is it going to go? Are we going to still be facing the same thing 50 years later down the road? Maybe not us, but other people yeah, who are coming yeah. behind us? Or can we actually get rid of the system and put in place an economic system that is geared to the needs of the people, not the profit of a few, and a political system that goes along with that economic system? So that's one question. Mm -hmm. Now, the other question, and I do think it's very much related, 
The police went rampaging into these housing projects. This is what they do to our youth all the time. Everybody talks about the prison pipeline from the neighborhood to prison. And this is what they are consciously doing with their mass incarceration, the new Jim Crow that you mentioned, the book by Michelle Alexander. Mm -hmm. This is what they're consciously doing. They put a jacket on these kids from the time they're not even teenagers. And then you've got a record. So now you've got a record. Next time you run into the police, they okay. run you through the system, you've got a record. You're, you're already heading toward being a felon, being convicted of a felony, and then being sent to prison. And then your whole family is affected by the fact that you're sent to prison. That's if right. you survive long enough to be sent to prison. So, you know, these raids they carry out, charging conspiracy, they're going and they're taking the, the, the social media of these youth. You know how youth are. You, you're talking about gangster proclivities, you know. <laughs> youth like, youth, they like to talk big, they like to talk bad, you know. I'm going to do this to you, I'm going to do that to you. They took all that stuff as if it were meant literally and said, this is all, you know, just talking bad on the, on the social media and acted as if this were actually concrete conspiracies that mm. they were waging to go out and kill a bunch of people and sell drugs. I mean, you could take almost any rap song and they do that too and convict a rapper of conspiracy to commit all kinds of crimes because that's what they often talk about in the rap. So where's your artistic freedom? Where's the freedom for these youth to express? They don't even, look, you know, I've often thought, sometimes walking down the street, and I have something in my pocket, and I've often thought as I pull out of my pocket, if I were black, I might be dead now because I pulled something out of my pocket that could be construed to look like a gun or some kind of weapon. You don't have, if you, they've got these youth in the inner cities are under a state of siege where all the rights that we're told we have, they don't have. They don't even have the right to express themselves through social media. Yeah, now, 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 this, we cannot, we cannot, we cannot accept this. This can't go down. And we've got to go out among not just the people who are directly to answer the question about what do we do about this. We can't just go out among the people who are directly affected by this. We have to go out broadly into society. We have to go out among all the diverse kind of people who are represented here tonight and say, you have to know about what is going on in this country of yours, in this society, where supposedly we have a democ democracy and supposedly we have rights for the people. But if you live in a certain part of town and you're a certain color and you're looked at by the system in a certain way, you don't have any of even those supposed rights. And we cannot allow that to go on. We've got to, it's our responsibility. That's right. It's our party's That's right. responsibility. And I'm determined that we live up to our responsibility, but it's also everybody's responsibility to go broadly. We got to go to the students. In the 60s, I was a student in the 60s on the college campus. That's how I got involved in the free speech movement and then working with the Black Panther Party and fighting against the Vietnam War. Why? Because when you get into the, when you're a student, I know a lot of them waste their time on nonsense, but at least when you're a student in college, you have the opportunity to learn about a lot of things if you want to do so and you take some initiative to do so. You have ideas that you can work with. You have the life of the mind that you can pursue if you have a mind to do it. And in the 60s, a lot of students did that. They would look at the world around them. Like I said, they saw people rising up and they said, 
I want to know what this is about. But, but, I want to understand but, this. But, but, but I think in the 60s, we had something else too. And this is a result of the cultural and spiritual war that went hand in hand with the class war. That when we turned on the radio and heard the voice of a David Ruffin, or when we turned on the radio and heard Sheila and Wanda Hutchison of the Emotions saying, there was a tenderness and a sweetness and a kindness that is the raw stuff of any kind of movement. Right. Whereas today, you know, it's say my name, say my name, as opposed to try a little tenderness, old is redden. It's hard to find tenderness, sweetness, and kindness. Same is true in terms of the collectivities. You see, when we turned on the radio, who did we hear? We heard the Delphonics and the Dramatics. We heard Enchantment. You see, we heard Lakeside. We heard Ohio Players. Heaven must be like this and skin tight. We heard a tenderness and a sweetness. When they turn on the radio today with the oligarchs and plutocrats, the same ones who control recording and radio, and video, and live performance. A cultural, a cult, that's, that's exactly right though, brother, I love that. It's a cultural, spiritual kind of call and tell pro. If somehow we can make sure that the precious souls of young black people, and of course by young black people, you're talking about all folk, because young people have been Afro-Americanized since Motown. <laughs> since the Funkadelics, since James Brown, so if we can keep their souls so chilly, and I see this in teaching in prisons for 37 years, I can see the shift in it. To keep the souls so chilly, the conscience so coarsened, and the heart so hardened, that you don't have the raw stuff for a movement. The people can't wait just to get over, to, be, to manipulate and dominate, or be obsessed with the 11th commandment, thou shalt not get caught because everybody's just trying to get over by any means. That's Wall Street. Not one Wall Street executive went to jail given all the crimes that took place in 2008. They didn't get caught yet. But that sends the same kind of sign in the young folk. But see, but again, when you talk about black people, you got to talk about our spirits and our souls and bodies as well as the organizing and mobilizing or we'll never be able to pull it off. Yeah, well, I agree. I think that, you see what I mean? Okay. Yeah, I do. I agree. On, I think that culture is very important. I mean, if you go back to the beginnings yeah. of hip-hop and you leave aside sort of silly things like Rapper's Delight or whatever, you know, which had a nice beat. Nice beat, nice beat, nice beat. Had a nice beat, but it wasn't about much. And the brother just died too, you know. Yeah. That brother just died. God bless his soul. But then you got, then you, got you know, uh, Melly Mel. And, and, Grandmaster Flash, and, 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 and Grandmaster Flash, Melly Mel. Then you got oh, Public Enemy with yeah. Chuck D. KRS and they were, they, they were talking about oh, something. Yes. And what happened? The people who control things in the music industry and in general came in and said, "We don't want that." Right. Ice T went from being cop killer to being a cop on TV, and they said, "This is." This is the way, this is the way you, you want to make it. This is the way you make it. All the rest of that stuff, we're going to push that aside and not let it flourish. So, but I think what's happening now, when you talk about yeah. a new wave, oh, no, the wave when you have a new wave of struggle, it brings forward or can bring forward a new culture. And I agree with you. I mean, I grew up on those songs that had tenderness oh, yeah. and love too. You know, That's it's very rich, different. Rich, and, rich and stuff. it's not weak to love. That's I right. think that's something very important. That's it's, exactly right. It, it is not weak to love. 
It is not weak to treat other people as human beings. And we need a culture that a culture that grows together with the actual struggle and is a crucial part of the struggle that promotes the kind of values you're talking about, that promotes looking out for each other and being together and seeing what we have in common instead of trying to get over on each other. And I believe, I mean, let me look, uh, I forget his, I can't call his Johannes name right. Johannes Hernandez, Johannes Hernandez. Give it up for Sister Johannes Hernandez, leader of the Mumia Jamal movement along with Mark Taylor. We love you, we love you, Johannes. We love you, Johannes. Love you, though, sister. Uh, no, I'm sorry to take No, that's this. all right. That's, yeah. No, we got to pay respect. Yeah, but, that's uh, true. I can't call his name, but I know there was a, a rapper recently who did, in, after the assassination of Michael Brown, did a, uh, came out with a song about that. I can't remember. There you go. Right? Now, that's just, you know, that's an example of what happens. It wasn't just. That's right. Here's the important thing, I think. It wasn't just because yet another black or brown youth was killed in cold blood. It's because people stood up and said, no, we don't yeah, care. Right. We're not taking this anymore. Yeah, that's and right. that's what inspired a little spark of a new culture. And the more that that happens, the more that we can bring forward that culture. And I agree, we need that culture. Oh, yeah. I do agree. I may not agree we need to get it from God, but I agree that we need soul and we need heart. I agree. I agree. I agree. I mean, the wonderful thing is that God doesn't ask for your permission. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just play, playing with you, brother. I'm just playing with you. Well, if I ever hear God asking me for my permission, I might change my view. <laughs> oh, Lord. A lot of people see some divine qualities in the love for the masses that you all have in the party. Now you got to, you got to watch it. <laughs> that was Cornell West and Bob Avakian touching on many important points about culture. And speaking of liberating and uplifting culture, here comes the plug. Go see Summer of Soul if you haven't already, and be sure to tell everyone you know about it and to see it. And that brings us to the end of yet another show. I want to thank my assistant producer, Henry Carson, my production assistant, Jeff Pryor, and each and every one of you for tuning in. If you want to share your thoughts and ideas about the show, or if you want to volunteer to be part of the show, write to me at mslate at themichaelslateshow.com. Once again, that's mslate at themichaelslateshow.com.